My name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to episode number 49 of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast, featuring my conversation with Juliana Mulligan, who is the Psychedelic Program Coordinator for an Outpatient Treatment and Training Center for Addiction and Mental Health Issues, the Center for Optimal Living in New York. And she also runs Inner Vision Ibogaine, supporting people in preparation and integration around Ibogaine treatment. There has been this imaginary line drawn between people who struggle with drugs and everybody else. And it doesn't make any sense um, because every single person on this planet has a destructive behavior at some point in their life that they use as a coping mechanism, whether that be shopping, whether that be sex, relationships, gambling, workaholism, and some of these are glorified within capitalism. And so what it comes down to is which destructive habit actually works within capitalism and which doesn't. Okay, so being a heroin user most of the time does not benefit capitalism, but if you're a workaholic, it does. And so why are we adhering to this line from a toxic system telling us that these these destructive behaviors are okay because it makes you productive, but these just destructive behaviors are a problem because it takes away from your productivity. I think that the original wound for many of us, and especially most people who struggle with addictive tendencies, is that we've been told since we were young that what we think and feel is wrong. Our parents do this to us, society does this to us. You know, we say, suck it up and keep working. That's the whole ethos of of capitalism, of modern capitalism. And so we learn to shove our feelings down. We learn to turn off. We learn not to listen to our intuition. There's no true exploration of how children feel in many family systems. In the psychedelic space, when you become a healer, a shaman, or a facilitator, Mostly you're working in a legal gray area, so there's no one monitoring what you're doing. There's no official training to certify you, in, in Ibogaine at least, and in most other psychedelic work. Then you're, you can make money and people are like putting you on a pedestal. It's the perfect storm for sociopaths and personality disorders to thrive. And I also just want to mention that I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk of psychedelics and ego dissolution and reducing narcissistic traits. I actually see a lot of people's narcissistic traits get enhanced and their ego get potentiated. What am I gonna do to confront these people and call them out to the world? Because I've been in the community so long, I I pretty much know what's happening and and I get complaints submitted to me over um, dangerous practitioners. And it's like, I don't know what to do. I'm not the police, you know, like how are we gonna deal with this issue of calling people out and confronting people and actually getting somewhere and helping that facilitator heal too. Like, how do we deal with that? We need to really up the amount of reciprocity that's happening. And reciprocity isn't only just throwing money at things. It's also um, honoring and prioritizing the voices of indigenous people. You know, like we should, we should all be consulting Guizzi practitioners in Gabon and Cameroon and and you know, learning what their wishes are. Most of the medicine that you find online, because there's a lot of people try to order it and do it at home, which is not safe, mostly it's stolen out of protected forests. 
and that's really important to be aware of. There's very little like certified safe iboga to be had and it's most of the safe dispensers of medicine will only only sell to clinics because of the safety issues. So I highly encourage people not to order iboga online and also to like read about Guiti, learn about the tradition of Guiti, look into ways if you're going to go do a treatment or also if you're making money off of Ibogaine in any way to give back. From the depths of opioid dependency and incarceration, Juliana Mulligan is a testament to how even during the most challenging, perhaps darkest moments of our lives, we can find a pinhole of light that leads to our greatest transformation and aligns us with our deepest purpose. Juliana shares her harrowing journey through the depths of struggling with opioid addiction and how ibogaine treatment helped her leave opioids behind. And because of a near-death experience at the hands of an unsafe and unregulated ibogaine provider, that that experience inspired her path to pursue a master's in social work at NYU and has fueled her mission to become an advocate for harm reduction, emphasizing safe practices for ibogaine treatment, and is really dedicating herself and her life to transforming the way drug users and their treatment is approached. Now, we cover some really important topics in this episode, three of which I would really like to highlight, including how we absolutely need to reframe our cultural narrative around addiction, Juliana emphasizes this narrative of addiction within the context of our current capitalistic structure, which really struck me as poignant to illuminate. And the last theme woven throughout this entire episode is really this understanding of just how hard it is to be an ibogaine provider and what it really takes to provide a high level of support in a good way and why psychedelic facilitation can oftentimes attract the wrong kind of people for that specific role, (laughs) to put it mildly. And Juliana really speaks to this. She has worked in three ibogaine clinics, has completed Dr. Andrew Tatarsky's IHRP training, has presented at multiple psychedelic and harm reduction conferences. I saw her present at Horizons back in December, where she received a standing ovation from the audience. And she's the co-founder of the Root Ibogaine Collective and has taught about Ibogaine at Charity University in Berlin and Southwestern College in New Mexico. And from this depth of knowledge base and personal experience, she shares red flags to look for when searching for an Ibogaine clinic, some of the prevalent challenges that Ibogaine providers face in this space, and we talk about the issues of accessibility, conservation, and so much more. Now, there are a lot of amazing resources shared throughout this entire conversation, including one I would like to highlight, which is a guide that Juliana co-authored for how to find a safe ibogaine clinic. She also offers a list of ibogaine clinics that she recommends, and all of these resources can be found at lauradon.co forward slash 49 including links to two very in-depth articles that Juliana wrote about Ibogaine, one for Double Blind Magazine and one for Shakruna. 
Okay, so to help set the context here and to deepen our understanding of this particular plant medicine, Tabernathy iboga is a perennial rainforest shrub native to the forests of Central Africa, and it contains one of many therapeutic alkaloids in the root bark. One of them is known as ibogaine. And local communities in Gabon have traditionally worked with iboga for healing ceremonies, cultural rites of passage, and for many, iboga is truly a way of life. And ibogaine has been shown to be an effective treatment for opioid addiction, as well as other addictions, largely reducing the excruciatingly painful symptoms of withdrawal that Juliana speaks to in this episode. This makes iboga an attractive alternative to traditional addiction treatment modalities. And since the discovery of the anti-addictive properties of ibogaine in the 1960s, global practices with ibogaine and iboga extracts from Tabernathy iboga have been expanding. And in the last 10 years, there has been a rapid surge of ibogaine clinics, providers, and retreat centers really popping up all over the world, many of which aim to provide alternative solutions for addiction recovery and treatment. And of course, this expansion has created all sorts of interesting challenges. I mean, this is an unregulated market, and it's also placed an enormous amount of pressure on the wild populations of this sacred plant medicine. So at the end of May, we are finally going live with a project to support plant medicine conservation, Grow Medicine. I've mentioned it here and there throughout some past episodes. And this has been an enormous project. It's been a huge undertaking. It's been in the works for over a year. It's a project of the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. And I'll be speaking quite a bit more about Grow Medicine and its mission and its purpose in the weeks to come. So please stay tuned for that and how you can get involved. All right, friends, I'm going to be leaving you with a song called There's a Light by my dear medicine sister, Clara, who goes by Clara T on Spotify. I just love this human being in my life. I'm grateful for her medicine ways and all of her music. When I first heard this song, I just felt its medicine magic just resonating within me in my heart. It's a little different. It's a different tune, and I really like it. And you can find a link to more of Clarity's music by going to lauradon.co forward slash 49. And guess what, y'all? I am about to hit 100,000 downloads for this podcast. And if you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could leave me a review on iTunes. And I would love to celebrate 100,000 downloads with 100 five-star reviews on iTunes. And I am almost there. And if you do leave me a review, please send me a DM on Instagram at livefreelauraD. And I'd be happy to share it in my Instagram stories and give you a shout out. All right, friends, without any further ado, here's my powerful conversation with Juliana Mulligan. Welcome, Juliana. It's such a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you today and drop in with you. It was so nice to see you in real time, in person at Horizons back in December. So thank you so much for taking the time to drop in with me here today. 
Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with you and be a part of a long line of amazing people you've had on the podcast. Mm, Thank you so much. I would really love to start by giving you the space to share your truly remarkable story and the journey you've been on that has led you to do the very important work that you're doing today. So I really just want to give you as much space as you need to really share that journey and that story with my audience. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm happy to tell that story. It's a it's a big part of my work and why I do the the work that I do. So I'm a former opioid dependent person and formerly incarcerated, and I spent the first seven years of my 20s going through um, all of the kind of typical things that people go through as someone who's dependent on opioids in this country. Um, so going to rehab, uh, going to jail being homeless, being beaten up, being on Suboxone, being on methadone, 12-step programs, kind of like that whole rigmarole. And um, it was really, the treatment system in the U.S. was really traumatizing for me um, because of the disease concepts and the one-size-fits-all mentality of mainstream drug treatment, um, which tells you that you're sick for life, you have a brain disease, and there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and that never sat right with me, but I didn't know that there were other ways to think about these, um, these concepts, because it was always pushed onto me that if you have a problem with drugs, um, this is the only way to work on it. This is the only way to view this issue. And so I just felt really uninspired and discouraged by this way of looking at substance dependence. Um, so I tried kind of all the typical things went to multiple rehabs. And um, finally, after seven years, I was living in Bogota, Colombia, and I was teaching English there. And I had discovered that I could get whatever drugs I wanted from the pharmacy. So I was like having a a heyday with that. And actually, that's kind of what helped me realize that I wanted to be done with opioids because I finally had as much as I wanted, um, which usually... For most people that aren't super wealthy in this country, it's always like, you can't get enough. It's always, if I could only have more. So I finally had that in Columbia because I had this pharmacy access and I got to have as many opioids as I wanted. And I realized that it sucked. And then I was really lonely and miserable and I wanted to get off of it. So I had heard about Ibogaine um, a few years before that from a friend um, who was super nerdy about psychedelics. And when I first found out about Ibogaine, I wanted to do it, but just didn't have the resources at the time. Um, And so when I really was at the end of my rope in Bogota, I decided like, I need, I think that this is it. I think I need to do Ibogaine. I was at first going to order it and do it myself, which thank God, um, a friend who knew nothing about Ibogaine talked me out of doing that. And I was really reluctant to tell my family what was going on because I had already put them through so much, but I did. I told my mom. And she was, to my surprise, 100% on board with Ibogaine. And I I found a clinic in like a couple of days in Guatemala. And I was on a plane um, to Guatemala in less than a week. Uh, So I left my life in Colombia and I never went back. And I went to Guatemala. So um, the guys that treated me, we have kind of a phenomenon in the IBM community of these like mad scientist cowboy type personalities um, who think that they've been given special gifts to administer Ibogaine and are not necessarily safe and aren't necessarily receptive to feedback, um, but maybe their heart's in the right place. And so I ended up with a couple of these type of guys. Um, And I didn't know this too much later, but they were not following safety protocols whatsoever. I was coming to them on a really high dose of fentanyl. I had, they told me I had the highest tolerance they'd ever treated, 
Um, and I was also like 110 pounds. So that was saying a lot. And, um, they usually with Ibogaine, you have to stabilize someone, especially with somebody with a high tolerance for a number of days. And you don't treat someone who's done fentanyl in the last 10 days, um, because of the way it sticks around your system. These guys though, they started giving me Ibogaine 24 hours after I arrived. So no stabilization period whatsoever. Um, they were giving me Ibogaine. My withdrawal wasn't going away, which is what usually happens with Ibogaine. Um, so they kept giving me more and come to find out later, they did not measure the doses because the guy that treated me thought that he had a magical intuitive sense of how much to give me. This is not something you can play around with Ibogaine. Well, we can get into this more later, but there's cardiac side effects. Um, you have to be very exact and precise about what you're doing and very, very careful. Um, so they ended up giving me about double the amount of Ibogaine that's safe to give anybody. And what happened was I started to have a really scary looking EKG, which, which is what often happens when you misadminister Ibogaine or you don't follow the protocols. And so they took me, they rushed me to a hospital. It was like a state Guatemalan hospital. Um, that hospital turned me away because they had never heard of Ibogaine. And I was like this 27 year old woman um, who, you know, seemed healthy. Otherwise, what are they talking about? I have uh, an arrhythmia or something wrong with my EKG. So they sent us away. We went to a second hospital that sent us away. I went to, um, and mind you, these hospitals were like packed. It was like a war zone in there. So um, they just kind of didn't have time for us. So we got to the third hospital. Um, they kept me for a few hours until the EKG kind of looked better and sent us home. Um, we got back to the clinic. EKG got much worse. Um, I was going into a deadly rhythm called torsades that pretty much always ends in cardiac arrest unless you have an intervention. So we rushed to a fourth hospital, which also was about to send us away until I hit the floor in the emergency room. Um, that was my first of six cardiac arrests that I had to be defibrillated and resuscitated out of. Um, so they finally took us seriously, um, of course. And after the six cardiac arrests, I think it was in a 24-hour period, they put me on an external pacemaker um, because what Ibogaine does is it, it blocks something called the potassium Herb channel and doesn't allow your heart to conduct electricity properly. Um, which is temporary. Once I begin into your system, those effects, there's no damage, long-term damage to my heart. It was just that I began interfering with its functioning. So I got put on this external pacemaker for a couple of weeks and I was in the ICU in Guatemala. Um, and this all sounds really crazy. Uh, but when I came out of it, I kind of didn't care what had happened. I was really fixated on the fact that I wasn't in opioid withdrawal. Um, as an opioid user who had been through countless cold jerky detoxes and just li basically living my life for seven years, running from withdrawal all the time and being half in withdrawal half of the time, to come off of a, the biggest habit I've ever had in my life and to not be sick, I couldn't believe it. It was astounding. My mom told me that I kept telling her on the phone, I'm not in withdrawal, I'm not in withdrawal. Um, and that was, yeah, that was amazing to me. And the other thing was that I felt that a huge weight had been lifted off of me. I didn't feel any of the shame or guilt that I had felt before for all the years that I had been fucked up. Um, and uh, I felt excited about life. And the biggest thing was that I knew in that moment um, that it was my duty to do whatever I could to change the mainstream addiction treatment system and to change the way people view people who use drugs. 
um, and the, the misunderstanding of uh, what, you know, so-called addiction really is. Um, and the other thing that I felt was IBDM's the future for opioid treatment and I want to work with this. And so I was kind of like off on my mission. I was fired up and it was the first time in my life that I felt like I had a purpose. And what was great about this purpose is that it means that all those years that I thought I was wasting and screwing up were actually my training to do the work I was supposed to do. So suddenly I just felt liberated from all of these chains that society had put on me around my drug use and it made complete sense. Um, and so the fact that I had had this medical emergency was like, well, you know, um, that's okay because I feel great now. Well, come to find out a year later when I went to my first Ibogaine conference, I realized that they weren't following the safety protocols whatsoever and that it was a completely avoidable situation. Um, so the good part about this is that it's made me really fixated on safety protocols and ethics and Ibogaine treatment. And people tend to listen up when I talk about it <laughs> because of what happened to me. So that's, that's the pro of that. Um, but that's basically what happened to me. That was in 2011. And um, ever since I've been doing various things related to Ibogaine treatments. Um, but that's, that's that segment of my story, at least the beginning. Okay. That's such a remarkable story. And I think this is a good place to pause because you've mentioned really feeling passionate about rewriting the narrative around addiction and opioid dependency. So can we just unpack that a little bit for people who are listening and they're thinking, what is she actually talking about? What is the old or current narrative and what paradigm and new narrative are you trying to help introduce into our mainstream culture now? Yes. So the mainstream narrative is that addiction is a brain disease and there's no cure and you have it for the rest of your life and there's nothing you can do about it. And most people also think that the only treatment is going to 12-step programs and admitting you're powerless and going through those steps. And you have to keep going to these meetings or else you're going to die, end up in jail, or end up in an institution. Um, so that is not what I'm into anymore. <laughs> um, and the issue with this, well, let me just start by saying I, I work in a harm reduction psychotherapy center here in New York City called the Center for Optimal Living. Um, and we approach things very differently. Um, first of all, the, the brain disease concept doesn't even make sense. It doesn't qualify as a disease whatsoever. And actually, the guy that came up with that theory um, was proven to be a charlatan later on in life. Um, and there was no scientific backing. I think it was just society just needed something, um, needed an explanation, because the whole notion, the original notion was that drug use is a moral failing. And we realized that wasn't right. And so at the time, actually, addiction as a disease was like a, a pro progressive step forward. But now we're realizing that that doesn't make sense either. Um, and that actually, when you tell someone that they have a disease they can't do anything about, it, el it eliminates the possibility of exploration of the very complex reasons um, that people do substances. Because it's actually quite meaningful. People are using substances for... Um, really big, important reasons and experiences and, and things that they've survived in their life. Um, and so harm reduction really allows for an exploration of all those unique factors. Um, the other thing about the mainstream disease concept is that it holds people hostage in one place. It doesn't allow for the fact that we are all constantly evolving and changing beings. And once we address certain aspects of ourselves, we might not reach for substances in the same way. I don't reach for substances in the same way at all anymore because I don't feel the urgency to escape out of my body. I used to be desperate to turn off how I felt. 
I don't want to do that at all anymore. I actually really like being here. And that's because I've done therapeutic work. And so this isn't to say that like, oh, eventually I'm going to use heroin recreation and be fine. Like, no, I don't want anything to do with that drug because it's like super sedating and doesn't, I have just no connection to it anymore, but it does mean that, um, I can have a glass of wine and nothing happens. And maybe that's not going to be the case for everybody, but for me, I don't need, I don't use substances to numb myself out anymore and I can leave them or take them. And this is like a revolutionary concept for people that have been super indoctrinated into 12 steps that tells you you can never touch anything again. It's going to be a disaster. Um, so I think that there is an infinite amount of possibilities for each person and the traditional concepts of addiction don't really allow for that. Um, the other thing that I want to emphasize is that there has been this imaginary line drawn between people who struggle with drugs and everybody else. And it doesn't make any sense um, because every single person on this planet has a destructive behavior at some point in their life that they use as a coping mechanism, whether that be shopping, whether that be sex, relationships, gambling, workaholism. And some of these are glorified within capitalism. And so what it comes down to is which destructive habit actually works within capitalism and which doesn't. Okay, so being a heroin user most of the time does not benefit capitalism. But if you're a workaholic, it does. And so why are we adhering to this line from a toxic system telling us that these, these destructive behaviors are okay because it makes you productive, but these just destructive behaviors are a problem because it takes away from your productivity? I'm not participating in the drawing of that line anymore. And I would argue that every single person on this planet could qualify as having an addiction at some point in their life. What I think it is, is it's really one, the underlying mental health issues that people have. Like when when people say, oh, is this, does this clinic do addiction treatment or does it focus on like psycho-spiritual? It's like there, there's not really a difference between these issues. Um, it's just the differences in, in how society treats them. Um, it's to me, the reason that people who use drugs suffer more than everybody else um, is because of the stigmatization of society. It's because of the criminalization. It's because we've made it incredibly unsafe to be a drug user. Um, but we've made it really safe to be an alcohol user. We've made it very safe to be a chronic shopper and a workaholic. Um, so I would just, for me, I really want to work towards erasing this line and designating people who use drugs as especially sick because it's a society created problem. Mm -hmm. I really, really appreciate that perspective. And it also makes me think of Gabor Mate's work, who I'm, I'm curious if his work has had a meaningful inspiration in your life. And when you look at the core as someone who has also struggled with debilitating addiction in my own life, a lot of times I can see the core was rooted in unworthiness or not good enough or disconnection and isolation. And what would you say are some of those core aspects that really drive people to reach for substances? So I think that the original wound for many of us, um, and especially most people who struggle with um, addictive tendencies, is that we've been told since we were young that what we think and feel is wrong. Um, our parents do this to us. Society does this to us. You know, we say, suck it up and keep working. That's the whole ethos of, of capitalism, of modern capitalism. Um, and so we learn to shove our feelings down. We learn to turn off. We learn not to listen to our intuition um, because we have to do our homework, because we have to keep going to school. 
Um, or for whatever reason, people are telling us like, no, no, stop crying. Um, just, you know, you need to go and sit with your grandmother, even if you don't want to, you need to, you need to get to school at seven in the morning, even if you're feeling terrible. It's like, there's, there's no, uh, true exploration of how children feel, um, in many family systems. Um, and so this original wound of what you think and feel is wrong, um, gets perpetuated when people go for treatment for addiction. Because you get told what you think and feel is wrong and you're powerless and you need to listen to us and submit to this program. It's like a, um, you know, it's re, it's reinforcing that original wound. It's perpetuating it. It's re-traumatizing it. Um, and actually, in harm reduction, what we do is we prioritize the goals of the person. We value what their goals are. We value what feels right for them. And so it's re-empowering. And, and I really think that this is what people need. But um, I do think that this, this original wound of what you think and feel is wrong, um, this wound of like, um, you know, I think being told from when you're a kid that your value is how you do in school. I think that's awful that children are really made to feel that their entire value is based on their performance in a school system that was that was modeled af after Nazi Germany to make soldiers. Like it's if it's a really not a system that um, welcomes creative, unique children whatsoever. And so if you don't do well in that system, something's wrong with you. I mean, for me, that was a big thing. Um, I felt like the most horrible person in the world because I couldn't do well in school. And then when you grow up, your values based on your career. Um, so these are like really toxic things and, and it makes you feel like um, it affects your self-esteem if you can't function in these systems. If you don't feel like you fit in with the other children, it affects your self-esteem. So I think isolation, loneliness, not feeling like you fit in, um, being told that what you feel is wrong are all uh, what precipitates these kinds of issues. Mm, I really appreciate the way that you're setting the context of all of this within the societal structure of capitalism. And it's really extending our understanding of set and setting and the environment that we find ourselves in is also extended to our culture and the systems that actually create that structure. And so I'm, this kind of links back to that second part of the story is like back in 2011, when you came through that journey out the other side. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that a big portion of relapse after people go through Ibogaine treatments is because they put themselves back in old environments and surround themselves with the same people that where they used to use. And I'm curious, what was that like for you to come out of that back in 2011, which was a very different psychedelically informed time than it is even right now? And we still have a really long way to go, but that was a decade ago. And so what was that like? And what do you wish that you had then that now people do have access to that has informed your work in the center that you work at now? Well, one thing that benefited me is that I didn't go back to where I was living in Colombia. Um, I came back to the U.S. So changing environments gave me a, a big edge. And I also didn't have any using friends because I used opioids. Opioids are more of a lonely drug, in my opinion. Um, so I didn't have to worry about like friends that I need to cut off, thank God. Um, so that was helpful. But I do wish that I would have had therapy, um, which I didn't get around to finding for a few years after that. And I didn't find out, I didn't even really learn what harm reduction was until like a year afterwards. So even though I was off and running and, you know, like I, I never used opioids again, so I'm considered like, you know, 
of success, even though there are many different versions of success and relapsing after Ivy doesn't mean you aren't successful. Also, I just want to say that. And I do wish that I would have had a better mental health support and harm reduction oriented mental health support as well. The place that I work now, it's like the center of my dreams. Um, all of the clinicians are amazing. And it's just such a beautiful thing to work with clients who are so used to the abstinence only model. And then they come to us and they're like, wait a minute, you want me to set my goals? You care what I want to do? Um, like what I feel is valuable. Like I am an empowered person. Like I don't have a disease for life. Like the, it's, it's so wonderful to watch people when they hear this and, and, I had a guy the other day break down in tears because he he was like so relieved that there was this other way because the abstinence only 12 step model never felt right for him. Um, so. And so what was some of the next steps that you took and when did you know that you really wanted to step into providing this care for people? Well, you know, even though my Ibogaine spider almost killed me, one of the great things that he did for me was I wanted to stay and work in the clinic. I didn't want to leave. Um, and that is a common thing that happens. Most people who work in pr clinics providing Ibogaine did a treatment themselves and then immediately opened a clinic or went to work in a clinic. Um, and this actually causes some issues. My provider said, go back home, um, learn how to live your life for a year and then come work in a clinic. And I'm so glad he told me that because it was the first time that I was like living as a responsible adult, essentially learning how to like make money and manage my life and all of that. Um, a lot of people who go immediately from their own treatment to working, they think they can't do anything else but provide Ibogaine. And this provide, this this contributes to a lot of issues that we can dive into later of people that don't take breaks and, and don't leave providing treatments when they should, and it ends up endangering clients. Um, but that's a whole other issue. So I went home, I ended up moving to the Bay Area um, I, I knew that I wanted to prepare for working in clinics. So I got an EMT certification because of what happened to me. I was like more, um, at that point, more interested in the medical side of things. So I got an EMT certification, um, went to my first, I began conference in Vancouver in 2012, met everybody and kind of started to set up where I was going to go train. Um, so I ended up taking longer than I had expected and started working in clinics in uh, 2014 in South Africa. That was the first clinic I worked at. Um, I worked at a clinic in Costa Rica after that, and then one in, in Mexico after that. And after my time providing treatments, I realized that there was something about being an IBM provider that didn't feel completely fulfilling to me. And I felt like I had skills and talents that could do something else, but I wasn't sure what it was. And I was uh, very resistant to going to school because I had, had such a hard time as a child with ADD. And, you know, I thought, well, if I'm, I'm a game provider, I don't ever have to go to school again. This is great. Um, but then when I realized that that wasn't the right thing for me, I was like, shit, I'm going to have to go to school. <laughs> so um, I realized uh, that working more from the psychotherapeutic angle was really where my skills were at. And so I embarked on the long journey of getting a bachelor's degree in. Now I'm working on my master's. Um, but throughout that process, I've always been informally helping families and people seeking treatment to find the right treatment because it's actually not easy to know where the good clinics are and what to look for. And so I kind of solidified that into a business um, about three and a half years ago 
um, working with people and their families around treatment. And now I'm also um, advising clients on safety protocols and mental health protocols and um, just kind of helping people doing consultations with people for whatever they need. But I'm really interested in like safety, um, ethics, how clinics are set up. I also work with Ibogaine providers supporting them through crisis situations. That's like one of my favorite things. Um, so there's a couple clinics that call me when they have emergencies or they have a really tough decision to make about a treatment. Um, so that's kind of like where I'm at now, but it's, it's been an evolution and it, it took a lot of trial and error, error to figure out like where my place was in the community. Mm, wonderful. And the person that administered that first or that significant journey where you almost died, is he still providing? No, he actually passed away in the, I think it was the end of 2017, um, is, which is really sad. He, this guy, you know, he was a pretty reckless guy, but he wasn't like an evil dude. Um, we kind of have this phenomenon in the community of people who come into it with the right intentions. They have really big hearts, but they're not taking care of themselves. I've been come attracts the people with the biggest trauma because it's the hardest psychedelic in the world. It's not recreational. It is not fun. And so people come to Ibogaine who've tried everything else generally and who have really big, heavy issues. Um, once you do Ibogaine, you feel so invigorated and excited about life. You feel like all of your problems are solved. And a lot of us are like, I'm going to, I, my calling is to be an Ibogaine provider. And so people dive into it without getting proper mental health support they get kind of, they do it in a kind of uh, workaholic destructive way where they don't take enough breaks and they're not taking care of themselves. We probably have one Ibogaine provider a year die um, for, for various reasons because um, they're not taking care of themselves in a car accident. Um, even like murders in Mexico have happened. Um, so we, it's, it's a big issue. We, we have a lot of talented, loving people working but who aren't really safe to work with vulnerable people because they haven't worked on their own issues. And this is the case with my provider um, who, uh, yeah, just wasn't taking care of himself. He got progressively worse. And after me, there was a handful of deaths over the years in Costa Rica um, because of his negligence. And he just, he just kind of got more delusional with time, which I've seen happen with a number of people in the community. And um, eventually he got in a car accident and, and passed away. So um, this is why I'm like really excited about supporting providers. I would love to be in a community where there was funding for every single person working in a clinic to be in therapy, where there was supervision for every single person working in a clinic. This medicine is so amazing, but it's also so dangerous and it's an art form to administer it carefully. We really need more support for the people providing it, or it's just not going to be safe. Mm, I so appreciate that. And I also really appreciate the way that you're actually bringing a lot of compassion talking about this man who supported you on a journey, who put you almost on your deathbed, but yet you're able to sit here and say, you know, he had a really good heart and really good intentions. And I think that that's an important balanced view because I think there's also a lot of demonization happening in the space right now and a lot of just judgment and people throwing shit around. And I think that we can actually do better as a community to hold space for these conversations that really come down to safety and harm reduction. Let's just get more informed. And your idea to have funding to support healing the healers, let's support the healers, let's support the practitioners. Even right now, we're seeing burnout at such high rates in the psychedelic space. 
on a whole. It's really, really a major issue that's happening right now. And so I, I really love that you're speaking to this so poignantly. And I'm curious to ask you if we could just shift gears a little bit for people listening when they hear you say that you went through this journey and that you didn't have any withdrawal symptoms on the other side. And that's very different than other programs and going to rehab. What is the mechanism in ibogaine that facilitates something like that? That seems actually quite miraculous. Yeah. Well, I want to clarify and say that I did have, I would say I had 15 to 20% withdrawal, which is nothing in comparison to the full bone thing. You know, like I definitely felt kind of uncomfortable and antsy for like a week or so afterwards and like trouble sleeping. So there's a little bit left. It doesn't take everything away, but it takes away the majority. Um, and I also want to clarify that it doesn't do that for all opioids. Suboxone and methadone, it doesn't really work on in that way. Um, a lot of people who are coming off fentanyl do have uh, more withdrawal symptoms than someone coming off of oxycodone. So it's, it kind of depends on the opioid um, and the way it works. Uh, but the way that it works, so one of the most important researchers in Ibogaine, Dr. Ken Alper, he says that we understand like 1% of how Ibogaine works because it's so complicated. It acts on every receptor site in your brain. Um, other psychedelics are much less. It's like a couple of receptor sites, but Ibogaine hits everything, which is why it's so amazing and also a little bit dangerous. Um, but the opioid system, there's a bit of a disagreement between researchers on how it works, um, but essentially it's sitting on your receptor without activating the part that gets you an opioid high, like it adheres to the opioid receptors, but it's not activating it. So it's kind of like upholding the place of where the opioids would have been. Um, and it's slowly wearing off. And so it's like, yeah, it's, it's basically holding the place and not leaving your system quickly. And so that's why you're able to essentially like skip the withdrawal process. It's, it's also doing something to the serotonin and dopamine receptors that feels to me like a resetting mechanism. And that's how it's described, but they also don't fully understand um, how it works. Unfortunately, there hasn't been enough funding for Ibogaine research, although that's been improving. Um, so I think there's going to be a lot of really interesting things that we learn in the future about Ibogaine. Um, it's being used to treat Parkinson's as well in very small daily doses, not the big psychedelic dose. Um, so I, there's a lot of implications for how this works, but, um, the, the opioid thing is amazing. It feels like a miracle after going through so many withdrawals from different opioids myself. Mm. I can just imagine, you know, a parent listening to this right now who is watching their child go through opioid addiction, who doesn't know that this even exists and might have questions and concerns. And it's amazing that your mother was on board to support you in this journey. My mom's an angel, basically. I, I think that's part of why that I did so well. Um, I think for parents who are like listening to this, I just also, I, it, it is quite a miraculous treatment, but I really want to emphasize that follow-up care is just as important, if not more important than the actual Ibogaine. Um, because a lot of people go home, like we were saying earlier, to the same environment and it's not conducive to supporting them healing. So um, it's like, it's almost not work, worth it to scrape together the $8,000 for IBD treatment if there's no resources to send them somewhere else afterwards. Yeah, I have two questions. One of them I do want to touch on access because I feel like this is a huge topic. Um, before we touch on that, is the center that you're at in New York, is that essentially preparation and integration support for aftercare? 
it, it does offer that. I mean, the Center for Optimal Living is working with people who struggle with substances, period. Not necessarily around ibogaine, not necessarily around psychedelics. Although we do have people trained doing psychedelic preparation and integration, including me. Um, ibogaine people are welcome at the center too, but it's not like the main focus. Um, we just work with people in general struggling with substances who are trying a variety of different treatments, even people doing 12-step, people on methadone. Um, it's like anybody struggling with drugs. And what is your take on access? I mean, this is an expensive treatment, although we could say that relative to rehab, this is a very affordable option. Yeah, compared to like the 30 grand one month rehab, um, $8,000 really isn't that bad. But it still is prohibitive. And honestly, mostly what I see, the demographic I'm most seeing being able to access Ibogaine is white men. And that is not okay. This is an indigenous medicine. Um, access should be available for everybody. And it's, it's a problem. Um, it's actually, I feel like for every five men that get referred to me to work with, I get like one woman, which a one white woman it's, and it's, I can't even tell you the last time I had a, a person of color, maybe a couple of years ago. And this is not okay for me in, in my work. I never turn away women or people of color, even if they can't pay. Really what needs to happen is more clinics should have scholarship funds and some do, um, which is great, but I would love for there to be uh, more money. Um, and that, you know, for every treatment you give, you set aside this, like this amount of money to fund the scholarship treatments. So this is something that needs to get focused on more. And when you are administering, are you doing that in another country, in a legal jurisdiction? How does that work? I'm not administering. Okay. I'm only working with people before and afterwards and working with clinics. Um, administering, the thing with being an Ibogaine provider is it's the most stressful job I've ever done. You can't have anything else going on in your life. Um, when you have clients there, you're essentially on duty all of the time because people can die from this medicine. Even healthy people can have a cardiac issue from this medicine. So you're constantly on the edge of your seat. It's, it, it's incredibly stressful and exhausting. Um, there's people are also having like their most intense trauma exposed all at once in one night. And they're, then they project it onto you. I mean, people go into all kinds of different states after Ibogaine. They get angry at you. Um, they threaten you. Um, they go into like a, ma a state of mania. Um, they go just all of the most difficult emotional stuff comes up and that's your responsibility to deal with that. So when you're an Ibogaine provider, you can't really have like another job that you're doing. You can't really be going to school. You can't really even have hobbies maybe because it's such a consuming profession. And so for me, it's not the right thing because I want to do all of these other aspects and improve the community and um, work in harm reduction. And so I'm like completely happy to not be administering <laughs> medicine. The other thing is like, you can't, you need like a full medical team. Um, you need like a clinic setting to really do this right. So um, there are people working underground in the US, but it's really hard to do it safely. And it's really hard to do it in a way that's sustainable and, and non-exhausting. You speak to something that I just want to highlight here for people listening, because 
I feel like there's this narrative that being a facilitator or a provider or a guide is like the top of the hierarchy in the psychedelic space. <laughs> and I'm just like, okay, guys, first of all, it's so overglorified. We're talking like emptying buckets, like lots of purge. You know, it's really... And it's amazing for people who feel that call and that are super clear. And then there, I think there are a lot of people who go onto that path because there's something egoic associated to it. There's like an ego inflation. And I'll, I want you to speak to that. And I just want to say that there are so many ways to contribute to the psychedelic movement. And you, Juliana, are such a perfect example of that. Even in the the keynote speaking that you're doing, I mean, that's a profound way to contribute. You know, speaking on podcasts, you put together this incredible series that I would love for you to, to talk about towards the end, you know, that's educational and you're in the safety and harm reduction space and integration and preparation. Being a facilitator and a guide is not for everyone. And and I think you're you're bringing that into a more rounded light here. Yeah, I think the obsession with being a guide and a healer and a shaman to me is like, I don't know, like it's very capitalist in that it's like you're, you want to have that power over other people. You know, it's like you want to be the magician. Um, you know, you want to be the wizard. It's like I, I feel like it's a lot of people's little kid fantasies being taken into adulthood. Um, and you know, like it's, it's a really important job and we need really balanced, talented people to do it. But what I see is a lot of people with unhealthy levels of narcissistic traits being drawn to doing this because in the psychedelic space, when you become a healer or shaman or facilitator, mostly you're working in a legal gray area. So there's no one monitoring what you're doing. There's no official training to certify you in, in Ibogaine, at least in most of their psychedelic work. Um, then you're, you can make money and people are like putting you on a pedestal. It's the perfect storm for sociopaths and personality disorders to thrive. And I also just want to mention that I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk of psychedelics and ego dissolution and reducing narcissistic traits. I actually see a lot of people's narcissistic traits get enhanced and their ego get potentiated. Um, I see that sociopaths become worse and personality disorder symptoms become worse. And I actually see this in Ibogaine treatment. People with unaddressed personality disorder symptoms actually get worse from the medicine. Um, when you don't have the right mental health support around you, um, certain like toxic toxic traits and um, toxic internal processes get enhanced. And so I see a lot of people getting drawn to these power positions. Um, and it's really not necessarily about supporting other people. A true healer is it knows that it's a collaborative process and that it's not about having power over other people. Um, so I'm always, I'm always really suspect of um, the like, maniacal drive to be this like healer and call yourself a shaman and be the center of the attention. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think, it's, I think it's the path of mastery on a real deep level. Like people have to be so lucid and devoted to their inner work to show up in a clear way and being put on the pedestal is just farther to fall. 
and the projections and all of that that come with it. It's really, really a lot. And you just mentioned ego disillusion. And I also feel like there's this like narrative that of the holy grail of, okay, I have to have the mega dose and dissolve my ego. And actually that I feel like that's a harmful narrative in the space because actually going through ego disillusion experiences can be incredibly disorienting on the other side. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think there's a lot of hype around like 5-MeO right now. And it, to me, it's like a really scary drug. And I've heard and seen a lot of people get really spun out and get worse. And I recently heard from someone who said that they became suicidal for the next year after their 5-MeO experience. So I think that we're kind of playing in fire with fire with these psychedelics. And also the emphasis on like more is better and bigger doses is better is really dangerous. I, in right now in my life, I microdose and that's it. And I'm happy with that. That for me, like even a regular dose of a psychedelic is way too stimulating for my nervous system. And I actually get in a lot of pain, a lot of physical pain from psychedelics now. And I get told the most ridiculous, horrible things by people that I just don't know how to let go of control. I'm not working with the right shaman. I just haven't tried the right uh, dose of medicine. I should try like this. Like, it, there's no one size fits with all way to use psychedelics. Different things work for different people. And I also just want to question the whole notion of ego dissolution with psychedelics. I don't even know if that really happens. Is that what's happening with psychedelics? I have never felt like my ego was dissolved, even when I've done big doses. Um, I I don't know. I, I think that um, for me, working slowly, and, and like kind of slowly unpiecing things inside of myself with the support of other people while also being willing to listen and self-reflect. This is the key thing. When you have a person who's narcissistic, who's completely unwilling to listen and be self-reflective and take responsibility for when they've harmed others, this is really dangerous. And I see this a lot, especially in the Ibogaine community, um, especially with men in the Ibogaine community, unfortunately, although it's not exclusively men, there are some toxic women too, but there's a lot of this um, kind of dominating patriarchal behavior. And when you point it out, there's zero ability for people to listen and reflect about it. Um, and these people should not be caring for vulnerable individuals. And there's no one monitoring it. You know, every day I wonder, like, what can I do? Um, how, how, what am I going to do to confront these people and call them out to the world? Because I, I've been in the community so long. I like, I pretty much know what's happening and, and I get complaints submitted to me over, um, dangerous practitioners. And it's like, I don't know what to do. I'm not the police, you know, like, how are we going to deal with this issue of calling people out and confronting people and actually getting somewhere and helping that, um, facilitator heal too. Like, how do we deal with that? Um, so that's a whole other complex topic. Oh, it's so complicated and it's nuanced. And as you said, some people really genuinely care and mistakes happen. And that's true, too, you know, and some of them can be prevented and sometimes things happen and it's outside of some people's hands. And I, I'm curious just to know, what would you say is the the division between male and female providers in the space? Would you say like 80, 20 male to female? In the Ibogaine space? Um, maybe I would have to like really sit down and look, it might be more like 60, 40. Um, but what ends up happening in the past in the Ibogaine space is it's always been white men who kind of have the platform and run things in the community. Um, and often they 
are like very kind of dominating with patriarchal behavior, um, abusive behavior behind closed doors. I can't tell you my like how many times that myself and some of my favorite women I became providers have had to face this kind of like heckling and condescending attitudes, even from like men who just showed up in the community and are brand new. Um, recently, um, my dear friend, Shay Pruger, who's one of the longest working women in the community, um, she was facing this really condescending um, derogatory remarks from a brand new men, man in the space. And this is something that's really, really common. Um, and it's a big issue. And yeah, it's really upsetting that this is still going on. And a lot of times when we want to speak out about it, people are like, oh yeah, this is important, but we're not going to, we're not going to remove that person off of our event. Um, or, you know, we, people are really unwilling to confront this. I have found. Mm, I love Shay. I know Shay personally. And it was, I was actually just thinking about that because when we talk about self-care, you know, these journeys are happening all night through the night into the early hours. And sometimes these journeys last 24 hours. And even being an ibogaine provider, it's really hard on your sleep cycle, sleep deprivation. That's when mistakes happen. It's it's no joke. Yeah, it's really intense. It's the most intense job I've ever done. Um, the people who do it deserve all the support in the world for doing it. And um, yeah, there's just, there's just not enough structure of support for Ibogaine providers right now. Mm, I'm curious to know, I'm sure people are going to email me asking me, well, who do you recommend? And I get people asking me for recommendations for centers all the time. I actually feel really, really hesitant and cautious to recommend and refer anyone anywhere. And that's why I created my free guide, 45 Questions to Vet Your Shaman Guide Facilitator. I think that that's a good way to empower people. How do you navigate the, the question of where to go? So Shay and I actually co-created a guide to finding a safe clinic um, that I'll send to you. And basically, I mean, it's not a foolproof guide, but if you ask this series of questions when you call a clinic, you'll mostly weed out the dangerous ones. Um, and so I'm with you. I think that suggesting particular clinics is risky um, because then you're, uh, if something happens, you're like a bit responsible for it. Um, and also, I think it's really important to empower people to use their intuition and do their own research and really get connected to the person they're looking into. I think that's super valuable. Um, but I do sometimes send clinic recommendations. I have like probably six places in the world right now that I feel safe about, which is pretty small, um, considering there's like 40 something so clinics in the world. Um, so sometimes I do show those names, but I, I really like for people to use the guide um, and ask the questions themselves and like form a relationship with the potential provider. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you feel like sharing any of those names here or no? Um, sure. I mean, Shay Pruger, I began Revelations, one of my favorites. Um, Claire Wilkins, legendary longtime IBM provider. Uh, she runs Pangea Biomedics. She pioneered the long-term low-dose protocol, um, which is revolutionary and way more safe. And in my opinion, like more has better long-lasting results with people. I she was the third person I trained with. So Shay and Pangea. Um, also Beyond is a new clinic that's opening 
that I'm helping to work on. Um, but they, they are new, but they are consulting like a bunch of us veterans in the community and they're doing a really great job with that. Um, and also a great place for like fentanyl detox is a place called Casa Santa Isabel in Tijuana, Rosarito area as well. Um, and also in Zomo, I have a game in that area as well as a safe guy too. And what would you say top three red flags? They're not asking for an EKG. That's one, number one, in advance. They have to be asking for an EKG and a liver, blood liver panel. That's red flag number one. Two, they're saying that they can get you off of Suboxone or Methadone directly or within a few weeks. Uh, Suboxone, you have to be off of six weeks um, or else you're still going to be really sick afterwards. Methadone, minimum four weeks, I would say, unless you're going to Pangea because Claire has a different protocol, but she's really the only one that can treat people directly from Suboxone and Methadone, in my opinion. Um, So that's two. Uh, A third red flag is they're trying to rush you down. They're pressuring you. Um, Clinics should never be pressuring you. A a real talented provider will want you to find the clinic that's right for you and won't pressure you to come to them. They'll, They'll want you to take your time. I mean, Shay sometimes talks to people for six months or a year before they even come for treatment to get to build the relationship with them and to really understand what's going on in their life. When a clinic is like, come down, come down this week, you know, it's, you can't rush people into this. That's when issues come up and when people, that's when people will hide from you that they've actually been doing Xanax regularly and didn't tell you. And then they'll go into a benzo withdrawal seizure during their ibogaine treatment and people die that way. So um, any clinic that's rushing or pressuring you is a big red flag. Mm, that is so wonderful. And what about looking into, is aftercare and integration support, is that part of most people's protocol, would you say, or just a very select few? It's getting better. Um, it used to be like, no. Um, I mean, my clinic was like, you know, you come in, you come out, see you later, figure it out. Um, but clinics are getting better about emphasizing aftercare. Um, there's one amazing place in Malinalco, a few hours outside of Mexico City called Inscape. Um, they have a six-week program. It's I visited it last year. It's absolutely beautiful. I've sent a lot of my clients there and they've loved it. Um, doing an ibogaine treatment and doing their six-week program to me is like the ideal setup. There is also a number of people doing work like I'm doing over like Zoom and the phone preparation and integration. Um, but really, I wish there was more places like Inscape for people to go and to be in community because community is like a big, big piece of this. Um, so I'm hoping that there's more quality like aftercare centers set up in the near future. Okay, great. And what would you say is the main distinction between ibogaine and people going to journey with iboga and for quote unquote more psycho spiritual purposes rather than healing from addiction or detox purposes? I mean, if you're not detoxing, the treatment is like it's much safer and smoother. Um, Because even though it's helping you to skip withdrawal, you're still pretty uncomfortable throughout. So that's a big difference. I mean, people who go, I don't know, I'm not sure I can really answer this because I've actually never done a big dose of Iboga. Both times I've done, you know, so-called flood doses was with pure Ibogaine. I think the centers that are working with Iboga are generally doing like traditional Guiti style treatments and they either have an Mganga from Gabon or they've trained in Gabon. Um, and so I, I've, I've been in Gabon and Cameroon and watched the initiations 
Um, so I know a bit about what that's like from an observer point of view. So I think if you're going to one of these like Buiti retreats for a psycho-spiritual iboga treatment, um, I think the difference is that it's usually not as intense in a big of a dose. Um, it's, I mean, you're not in a clinic setting. It makes a big difference to be in like a hospital feeling type space and, or like a retreat doing booty rituals. Like that's two completely different things. So I think the setting makes a big difference in that. Um, but generally with root bark treatments, I think that, um, you know, you might vomit more. That's another thing. I don't know. It, it's hard for me to say, cause I've, I've only personally done the clinical versions of this. Um, haven't had a chance to do an initiation and gamble myself. Yeah. Do you feel called to that path? I guess part of it is that I just want to contextualize this conversation around ibogaine within just the awareness for people listening that it comes from iboga, that comes from a whole culture and a whole lineage and a tradition that is very different than what we experience and know in the West. So anything that you'd love to speak to, that awareness yeah. would be helpful. Yeah, it's it's a really beautiful tradition, Buiti. Um, it has its origins from the Pygmy people. They don't really know how long they've been using Iboga, um, but I suspect it's a really long time. Um, in the the ceremonies that I watched, what I saw, at least in the first village that I was in, is that everybody does an initiation at some point in their lives, but there was no set age. Basically, the Nganga, who's like you know the equivalent of a shaman in the village decides when each person, um, when it's time for their initiation. That could be at any time. We saw a six-month-old baby being initiated um, along with a 31-year-old woman. So the initiation time is really based on the person. Um, but it's it's a really beautiful process because the whole village is involved for every initiation. It's really a community thing. People are eating small amounts of iboga their whole life from when they're in the womb. Um, and they do it for initiation into your true self, but also to like heal various ailments. Um, they had no idea that it was like an addiction interrupter because they don't have the same kind of issues that, that we do in the West. Um, but um, also what I want to say about that is most of the medicine that you find online, because there's a lot of people try to order it and do it at home, which is not safe. Mostly it's stolen out of protected forests. And that's really important to be aware of. It's um, there's there's very little like certified safe iboga to be had, and it's most of the safe like safe dispensers of medicine will only only sell to clinics because of the safety issues. Um, so I highly encourage people not to order iboga online, um, and also to like read about buiti, learn about the tradition of buiti. Um, look into ways if you're going to go do a treatment, um, or also if you're making money off of Ibogaine in any way to give back. And, um, one organization called Blessings of the Forest working in Gabon is doing a ton of work on conservation of Iboga and replenishing Iboga and protecting it for the traditional people who use it. Um, and I always like to frame it as like a colonization issue. You know, the fact that psychedelics are blowing up right now and people are going all around the world and taking these indigenous medicines and bringing them here. Um, it's another form of colonization. If you're not, if you're not working to prioritize and protect, protect the traditional people who use these medicines, then you're just a colonizer. 
Um, and so I really, we need to really up the amount of reciprocity that's happening. And reciprocity isn't only just throwing money at things. It's also um, honoring and prioritizing the voices of Indigenous people. You know, like we should we should all be consulting Gwiti practitioners in Gabon and Cameroon and, and, you know, learning what their wishes are. Um, even the researchers in, in the clinics, you know, there's like this, these new kind of big Ibogaine companies being set up. And um, it's really scary to me because I don't see uh, much mention of indigenous reciprocity in the mission statements of these organizations. That's such a great point. And I just want to mention at the end of May, we're going to be live with Grow Medicine, where we're making it really easy for people in the medicine community to embody right relationship and reciprocity. And for Iboga, we are launching with featuring Blessings of the Forest. And we have an interview coming out with them where they're going to really go deep into some of these cultural nuances. And there's a lot to understand about the cultural context of what's going on. Um, my understanding is that most centers, about 90% of people um, providing ibogaine and iboga are from, it's poached from the wild. And so that it is all illegal poaching happening. Blessings of the Forest are working very, very hard to create systems and work with the government to create um, real fair trade, essentially, and new models for how they can be exporting it, working with the local Gabonese people. Because that's the, actually the worst part about it is that local people don't have access to their own medicine. And that's heartbreaking when you really think about it. Yeah, it's 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 awful. I've heard of places using alcohol in their ceremonies instead because they don't have iboga, which oh, is terrible. My goodness. Mm -hmm. What else have we not talked about that we really wanted to dive into? What are some of the other topics that you feel are really alive for you right now? Hmm. Yeah, I, you know, the course that I just did for the Center for Optimal Living, it was called Working with Psychedelics to Treat Substance Use Issues. Um, this was really like a, you know, a harm reduction version of like supporting people through their substance use issues. I What I have encountered a lot in the Ibogaine and psychedelic space is the same mainstream stigmatizing disease concept attitudes and abstinence only attitudes. And so I really wanted to um, train people in the harm reduction approach and how to support people using drugs. Cause more and more people are coming to psychedelics to deal with their substance, um, dependence issues. Um, and so this course, it was an eight week course. I think we had about 30 people teaching on it. It was like all of my favorite people in psychedelics. Um, plus also Gabor Marte and Carl Hart were on it. Um, Laura May Northrup, who I know did your podcast taught on it. Um, we partnered with Sage Institute, um, who's uh, a low-cost ketamine treatment provider in Oakland. They're amazing. Um, I highly suggest donating to them. They're doing amazing work. Also, Sauna. Um, we had a lot of people from Sauna, another low-cost ketamine place in Chicago, who were teaching on the course. Um, but really, it was uh, that we covered um, so many different topics, but it was all through an intersectional lens. And so we were looking at substance use through the lens of anti-oppression and talking about the ways that um, capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, all affect people and ultimately have created the mental health problems that we have today. And, and how, do we, how do we work from an anti-oppression standpoint? Because if we're not talking about these things in the psychedelic world, we're just gonna perpetuate the same culture of dominance and power grabbing and patriarchy. And there is a lot of patriarchal tendencies in this community. Like, 
it's, it's slightly improving here and there, but um, I think that we really all need to be doing this work from an intersectional lens um, and talking about the system that we live in, because um, even those of us with the most, most privilege are still going to be affected by this. And people with less privilege are really harmed by the system that we live in. And we can't have like, you know, people of color coming to us for help and we're not informed at all about how racism works, how white supremacy works, um, how, you know, colonization has, in, has affected indigenous people. Like these are all things that we really need to understand and work from in our work supporting people. And so that's what this course was really informed by. And I'm hoping we're going to do like a part two of it. Um, I would really love to do it in person eventually. Um, but I'm really excited about that. And like all the people, all the speakers that we had, I'm just like floored by. Um, so, and it'll be available for purchase soon for people that missed the course also. Okay, wonderful. And you can send me that link. I'll put it in the show notes if it's evergreen and people can uh, watch that on their own free time. That's amazing resource for people. I'm also I was just kind of curious, do you feel like sharing what you microdose with? Sure. Um, my favorite thing is iboga TA that I microdose with. Um, hopefully, I don't have a license yet. I'm still in my master's program, so hopefully I can't get my, my license removed for talking about this, but I think it's okay. Yeah, I microdose with iboga total alkaloid extract. That is from a plantation in Cameroon, a verified plantation in Cameroon. Um, and... It's my favorite thing. I, I take the teeniest, tiniest amount and it helps me to feel really present. Um, it's not good for a high pressure day with multitasking. It's great for slower days, but um, it's it's quite amazing how subtle it is, but how it, um, it'll, it'll bring my attention to look at different narratives I have circling in my head and, and, you know, help me to decide to change them. I also will sometimes microdose with mushrooms but um for whatever reason me and iboga work best together so <laughs> that's usually what i'm doing and was there a resource that you could recommend for people because even microdosing with iboga is not it's it's not to be taken lightly for people listening and i do recommend when we start talking about you know medicines like this to work with a practitioner or someone who can help oversee and support your practice Definitely, because actually even small amounts of iboga can put people in the hospital if they have like a, an arrhythmia they don't know about. You know, people can have transient arrhythmias that might not show up on an EKG. Um, there's all kinds of things at play. And so definitely, especially for iboga, um, you need to be working with someone to kind of like coach you through it and, and make sure that you're doing it safely. Mm -hmm. And I've also yeah. heard that it doesn't really make sense to microdose unless you've done a flood dose. Do you have a different perspective of that? Yeah. I mean, I've heard that a lot, um, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I mean, the, the Parkinson's patients who are doing really tiny amounts of Ibogaine daily, they haven't done a big treatment a lot of the time and they are still receiving benefit and that it's greatly reducing their Parkinson's symptoms. So I think that, um, you know, probably I would say in Gabon, according to Buiti, they wouldn't want you to do small amounts without doing any initiation. And that's important to note, but also I think it's important to be flexible. A lot of people don't have the money to go do an IV treatment. 
Um, a lot of people might not have the health to be able to stand an ibogaine treatment. So maybe doing tiny amounts is like what's going to be best for them. And um, I would rather make things safer for people than say, just don't do it. Cause that's like the, just say no um, bullshit drug war campaign. Like we have to support people wherever they're at. Mm, I really appreciate that perspective because I think it's so easy, even in the psychedelic space for people to be drawing all sorts of hard lines and making very hard statements when it's like, actually, that's not so black and white. And there's a lot of gray there. And we have a lot of different factors that are very complicated, like not having enough resources to go and do a larger treatment. And at the end of the day, what the goal is, is to help support people's health and well-being. Like fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do. And so, yeah, I think that there's there's always it's always a case by case basis. But please work with an experienced practitioner or provider, even if you're microdosing. And I'm curious, do you have a, a practice or a morning practice that you like to engage with with your microdosing? First of all, my microdosing, I don't have a schedule. I just kind of do it intuitively. And right now, because I have school and work, I'm juggling so many things. I'm not doing it as much. Um, but when I microdose, I like to, you know, do like some stretching, like a little bit of yoga and like a short breathing exercise. Um, I also am addicted to the ice cold shower every morning, thanks to Wim Hof. Um, so that's really helped. I do that microdosing or not. Um, but definitely if I'm going to microdose doing a little bit of yoga and some breathing exercises, um, and yeah, I mean, some people also like love journaling a little bit in the beginning. I've done that before. Um, that's also a great practice to accompany your microdose. Yeah. And any other self-care practices that you'd love to share to help manage stress, prevent burnout? I know you're juggling a lot of different balls in the air right now. I know so am I and so many other people listening to this podcast are as well who are in the psychedelic space. So I'm starting to introduce more of these questions at the tail end of my interviews because I'm curious to hear what other people are doing to help nourish, fill up the cup. Yeah. Um, I mean, for one, being in therapy is like number it's it's a big piece and i think anybody working in this space really needs to be doing their own work that's one um two just doing fun things with people um i think community is a huge piece of healing and i i also think a lot of our mental health issues come from being in a hyper individualistic capitalistic society where um it's all about personal space and um i you know i went to live in berlin for a while and uh, Germans, uh, and any, any other nationality in Berlin, like would joke around that the American roommates just like stay in their own room all the time and away from everybody. And they, they want their personal space. And so I think we have like this kind of like weird phenomenon in this country of, um, really shutting ourselves off from other people. And I think it comes from the fact that many of us are descended from either colonizers or colonized in this country. And we've lost a lot of our traditions and sense of community. Um, like, you know, my family came from Sicily, for example, and stopped speaking Italian because they wanted to assimilate. And so I think the cutting off from our traditions has really left us all with like grappling with how to find culture. Um, and, we're like way too about our own agenda and our own personal space. And we've lost this sense of like how to connect with other people. Um, and I have a lot of clients who are just like, I don't have friends and I don't want to make any. And it's, and it's, and it's sad. And, and really what, what the best medicine is, is other people and is being in community. And so I think 
doing thing for me, the most joyful part of my life is, is being with other people and just doing fun things. You know, self-care doesn't have to be about like, I got to go to yoga. I got to go to this breath work class. And it's also like just having fun and just being spontaneous. Um, and I don't think that that gets prioritized enough. Our culture is so much about productivity and, and hard work, but it's like, also most people who are coming off drugs have zero idea how to enjoy themselves and have fun without drugs. Um, and so we really need to emphasize this and help people learn, like, what do they enjoy? Like, what is fun for them? I love that. Thank you so much for sharing. And last question, I'm kind of curious, just whose body of work do you really draw a lot of inspiration from currently or in the past? Who, who do you really admire in the space? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm reading Laura May Northrup's book right now. Of course, it's amazing. Um, Gabor Mate, of course, as well. Um, Dr. Carl Hart, I just saw him speak earlier this week. Um, he is like revolutionizing the way people view um, people who use drugs. Um, I mean, my boss, Andrew Jatarski, has been a big inspiration for me as well. And also there's just like people working in the space who maybe haven't written books are really inspiring to me yet. Like Yeti Leaks Estrada, who runs New York Psychedelic Society um, and works for New York Department of Health and does like amazing harm reduction projects in the city. She's really inspiring to me. Um, the Ancestors Project, um, Charlotte and, and Dre, their work is really inspiring for me. Um, Paula Khan, who's an activist in the psychedelic space from Southern California. Um, let's see, uh, Sage Institute. It's like, it's for me, it's like watching people in the community who are doing um, phenomenal intersectional informed work are like what I really draw a lot of my inspiration from. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I think a lot of people draw a lot of inspiration from you as well and the work that you're doing and all that you're bringing to this movement. And it takes a lot of courage, it takes a lot of courage these days to be at the forefront of anything. And I think especially at the forefront of the psychedelic space. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing as well to elevate all of our voices. It's such an important thing to support each other in, in getting platforms. So thank you. Thank you. Such a joy dropping in with you, honey. So good. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. As I'm sure you've noticed, there were a lot of incredible resources mentioned throughout this entire conversation. You can access all of these resources, including a full transcript, by going to lauradon.co forward slash 49, where you can also find a guide to finding a safe ibogaine clinic and learn more about Juliana and the work that she's doing in the psychedelic space. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could leave me a review on iTunes. I'm about to hit 100,000 downloads for this podcast, and I would love to also simultaneously hit 100 five-star reviews on iTunes. If you leave me a review, please send me a DM on Instagram at livefreelauraD, and I'll share that review with my audience in my Instagram stories, and I'll give you a shout out there. Please remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you know someone who might really benefit from this particular episode, really encourage you to share this medicine with them. All right, friends, I'm going to leave you with this song called There's a Light by my dear medicine sister, Clara, who goes by Clara T on Spotify. 
first time I heard this song, I just felt that frequency of being in the medicine space. And then I met Clara and I was like, you're my homie. I love you, girl. And so just a shout out to the medicine magic that this human being is and grateful for her in my life. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time. So we